Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the elders here at CCF and delighted to be able to worship with you this morning and to preach Psalm 36. As most of you may already know, we've launched back into our Summer in the Psalms series. After today, we'll have two more weeks in the Psalms before we wrap up. And I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Father God, you are indeed great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good gift of gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ this morning to worship you, to lift up our voices in song, and to hear from you through your word. I ask that your spirit would be mightily at work through your word today. Help us to hear what it is you desire for us to hear, and that it go down deep into our hearts and affect the way that we think and speak and act and live for your glory. Have your way, Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with a, a short introduction with a story from time that I spent overseas in a country down in South America. I spent a little over two years in a village called Ditabiki there in South America, and it was on an island in the midst of the river called the Tapanahoni. And at the, the northernmost part of this island, there was a, a big rock surface. And I would love to go out there at night after it was dark. And the sun had long since set. And on a clear night, the stars would actually twinkle. They would shimmer and shine in a way that I hadn't really seen here in America. And I know that there are places in the U.S. that you can go where there's little light pollution, so to speak, and probably see similar things. But when I would sit there on that stone and, and look up at the stars, I couldn't help but think of, of God and his greatness. And that dark night sky set the backdrop for those stars to shine in a way that I hadn't really seen before, although I know they've always shone in that way. Similar to those who've gone to a jewelry shop and looked at diamonds, they'll often set a necklace or a bracelet or a diamond down on something black in order for that diamond to shine and for the eye to catch it in a way it might not have been able to without that black backdrop. And that's a little bit of what we see taking place here in verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 36. We open up with the way of the wicked. We see the darkness of sin and the depravity of man. And not that God needs any backdrop for his glory to be seen, but these verses provide a stark contrast to set the stage for Psalm 36. And then God's glory is put on display as we continue to work through this passage. I've titled it, The Steadfast Love of the Lord, because God's steadfast love is mentioned three times in this short psalm. And if I were to have given it a subtitle, it would be God's greatness and the gospel put on display, or God's glory and the gospel put on display. We'll see the beauty of the gospel as we work through this passage together today. You'll see a brief outline on the screen, four different sections that we'll work through initially the way of the wicked in verses one through four. And then in verses 5 through 6, the greatness of God. As we continue in 7 through 9, we'll look at the blessings of his beloved, his children, his people. And we'll close in the last three verses with a prayer of David 
in verses 10 through 12. And so with that brief introduction, let's jump right in to the way of the wicked in verses 1 through 4. There's a heading that begins this psalm to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. And as we read through these first four verses, I want you to listen for and think about the wickedness and the sinfulness of this man and and the progression of it as well. Verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He's ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And there in verse 1 when it says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. You might remember back to grade school when you learned about personification, giving human characteristics or qualities to a non-human object. It seems to be what's going on here in verse 1. If sin were to be personified, given human-like characteristics, it would whisper, some translations say, or declare, or speak to this man. And and not just to speak to him or, or to whisper something that's in one ear and out the other, quickly forgotten, or a thought taken captive and surrendered to the Lord. It's penetrated to his innermost being, to the depths of his heart. And this this isn't the worst of it. We see in verse one, it continues on with there's no fear of God before his eyes. That's probably the worst thing that we see for this man in the way of the wicked in verses one through four. And because he doesn't have a fear of the Lord, he doesn't have faith in the Lord. And because he doesn't have faith in the Lord, he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. And because he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord, he has nothing to do with these sins that we're gonna see in verses two through four. The darkness continues to set in. Paul speaks of the unrighteous in Romans 3, 18 in the exact same way. He says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And we can contrast that with the righteous that do fear the Lord. One example in Psalm 119, 120, the psalmist says, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I'm afraid of your judgments. And we'll continue to work through two, three, and four and let's see what happens to this man, how he's characterized. Sin isn't just isolated into one little area of his life. It's infiltrated into all aspects of it. It says in verse two that he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. You've probably heard the phrase before, not to to flatter yourself. You know, in in Romans 12, three, we're told not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Rather, we should think with sober judgment. How? How? each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. But remember, this man has no fear of God and he has no faith in God, so he can't think of himself with sober judgment, so he just flatters himself to the point where he can't even see his iniquity, much less hate it. It reminds me of Psalm 32, David someone who did have a relationship with the Lord, he still wrestled with sin, and so do the believers in here. We all do still today. 
In verses 1 through 5, we'll jump to verse 4. He specifically said, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He wasn't dealing with his sin, even as someone who did have a relationship with God. But then his eyes are opened, and he's able to see. And look what we we see here in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. He acknowledges his sin to the Lord. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This man can't do that because he can't even see his iniquity. Why? He doesn't fear God. He doesn't have a relationship with God. He has spiritually blind eyes. And for those of us today who are in Christ Jesus, that's where we once were. Praise God, that's not where we still are today. When we stumble, when we fall, when we enter into temptation, when we enter into sin, we can confess that sin to the Lord. We can repent of those sins, knowing that the cleansing blood of Jesus has washed them away. We can get back up knowing that we've been forgiven. Not so with this man. A couple things to to remember here. He is blind to his sin. He has spiritually blind eyes. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit that that can change. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, it says in Ephesians 2.8. It's not something that we've earned something that we've worked for, something that we've paid for. It's been a gracious gift from God. We continue on in verse 3. For the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. That shouldn't be a surprise. Jesus says in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And this man is speaking words of trouble and deceit from his mouth. He's even gone beyond that. It's not just his words that are affected, but his actions he ceased to act wisely and do good. These sinful words are things probably like gossip, slander, little white lies or blatant obvious ones. Cursing God, cursing man, the list goes on. And not only his words, but again, his actions. Sin's not just contained into this one little area. It goes into all the crevices of the heart and affects every aspect of the heart and the life. And if that weren't bad enough, verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He's embracing it. Premeditated sin. He's on his bed plotting out his wicked deeds and acts, what he plans on doing tomorrow. He has firmly established his way in the way of wickedness. He's embracing this lifestyle. And I know that every non-believer out there, this might not necessarily be the case. It comes in all shapes and sizes. People choose to worship all sorts of things other than Jesus. I was behind a car at a stoplight recently, and they had about 20 bumper stickers, and that's generous, on the back. And one of them said, plants heal. And I was like, that's true. I don't know if I would put that on a bumper sticker, but that's fine. I I wonder what their theology is. I mean, and that's an accurate statement. There's medicinal purposes to plants. That's a good, gracious gift from God. And the light was still red. I continued to scan the bumper stickers. And then I came across another one, and it said, tree-hugging dirt worshiper. 
And I know that you can't really know someone's theology by their 20-plus bumper stickers, but it caused me to think about Psalm 115. I won't read it all, but this is where it talks about man making idols with their hands out of silver and gold. And the psalmist says that those idols have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, mouths but can't speak, hands that can't feel, feet that can't walk. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Whether it's plants or dirt or idols or whatever, we see from God's word that if we don't follow the way of Jesus, that is a faulty way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. A few application points from this first section. Sinfulness has completely infiltrated every aspect and area of this man's life. Praise God, this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the psalm. It's only the beginning. But let us even as believers remember this isn't just about the lost. Even as saved saints, we still wrestle with sin and temptation in our lives. And we shouldn't treat sin like it's this little thing that we can put in a cage over here, a little pet that we can bring out to play with every once in a while. And when we're done, we can put it back in the cage and wait for another day. The more we do that, we begin to see that's no pet, but that's a lion. That everything it gets its paws and its hands on, it wreaks havoc with. We need to confess those sins to the Lord, take them to the Lord. And one last thing to remember, we're going to momentarily press pause here at the end of verse 4. We'll pick back up in verse 12 at the end of the psalm with what happens to the way of the wicked if they never come to fear the Lord and trust in him. And so that sets the stage back to our introductory illustration. The black, dark night sky has been set. The, the black backdrop for the diamonds to be laid out on is on the counter. And now we transition into our second point, the greatness of God in verses 5 and 6. Calls me to think of Ephesians 2, which we'll read from in just a moment. The classic verse, verse 4, these two important words, but God right? The darkness, the depravity, the sinfulness of man, or we could call the fallen condition of man we see in verses one through four. But God, he intervened. He made a way. And we get to see David praise God. He turns his mind away from wickedness and sin to God and his attributes and his character here in verses five and six. Let's see what it says. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. The stars have come out. His attributes are on display. David is praising the Lord for his steadfast love and so many other attributes. I love that word steadfast. His steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not just saying that God loves us. It's not just saying love, but steadfast love. And not just steadfast love, but his faithfulness that extends to the clouds. Steadfast meaning firmly, fixed, unwavering, continual, day after day. And this isn't the first time we see steadfast love. We can actually go all the way back to Genesis. But a really... Uh, awesome place to look at it is where God is describing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34 with these exact same words. Let me just read this to you briefly. 
the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God knows these things about himself, but David knows that God knows these things about himself, and he's still praising him for it. And these words are more than just like the Hollywood love word that we hear all the time. There's action involved here. This isn't just, oh, I love you emotionally. This is a commitment to be faithful to his promises, faithful to his people, faithful to his covenants. I love 1 John 3, 18. It says, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And that's what God does for his people. He works through his word, which is truth. He shows his love with his actions, fulfilling his promises. Just last week, Jake preached a great sermon on God being our good shepherd from Ezekiel 34, and he ended with seven promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you weren't here last week, I'll just run through them briefly. This is just seven promises from one chapter. God will rescue his sheep from this world. He'll search for them, bring them into their own land, satisfy their hunger, give them rest, heal them, and he will be with them. Seven promises in one chapter of the Old Testament. Now, I looked up an article this week, and whether this number is exactly right or not, it gets the point across. There was a, a teacher in Canada reportedly on his 27th time of reading through God's word he sought out to record all of God's promises. And he came up with this number of 7,487 promises, simply from God to man. And we as believers in Jesus Christ know that his steadfast love and his faithfulness is something that we can rely on to fulfill either has already or will one day those 7,487 promises to be with us, to provide for us, to offer us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. He's preparing a place for us in the days ahead. And we could go on and on and talk about God's steadfast love and faithfulness the rest of this sermon, but let's keep looking at what else David has to say about the Lord. It says, his righteousness is like the mountains of God and his judgments are like the great deep. What's David doing here? He's doing the best that he can with human words to describe how great his God is. We actually know here on earth, at least to this day, it's been discovered that the deepest point on earth is somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. It's called the Mariana Trench. And at the bottom of it is specifically called the Challenger Deep. You don't need to remember that, but it's reportedly 36,000 feet deep. David is not saying, Lord, your judgments and your justices are 36,000 feet deep, and that is awesome. Now, when he says your righteousness is like the mountains of God, that's like tossing you a, a tape measure and telling you to go measure out the Rockies, come back and report on what you found, and that will just begin to give you an idea of how amazing and awesome God's righteousness is. That's our God. In our scriptural call to worship this morning, in Psalm 145, we said that he is great and greatly to be praised. And right after that, it says his greatness is unsearchable. We can't fully comprehend it with our human minds. Yet, 
that shouldn't keep us from doing what David is doing. Right after thinking about the darkness and the depravity of man, he turns his attention to God's character and his nature. He's basking in the glory of God. He's praising God for who he is. And if that weren't enough, there's another part of verse 6 at the end, and it says, man and beast you save, O Lord continuing to talk about God's greatness. Now, some of you may be wondering, man, man and beast, you save, O Lord? Is this a verse I should go to when our kid's pet dies and we talk about how all dogs go to heaven? I have a a slide on the screen for you. I really enjoy the ESV translation, but it is one of the few that actually uses the word save there. You can see three other instances where the word preserve is mentioned or care or protect. Don't let that disappoint you. That's another characteristic of God, how he provides for his people. We see that all the way in the Old Testament with God leading the Israelites through the wilderness, providing manna from heaven, providing a boat for Noah and his family. He continues to provide for us today. We see in the New Testament, Jesus talking about his provisions for his people. Look at the birds of the air, how the Lord feeds them. Look at the lilies of the field, how they're clothed. It seems as though the Lord is saying that he is a provider and a protector in these verses. There's a quote from one of the commentaries I was reading through this week, and it said, it's likely that here in verse 6, that to save in this sense, may mean more of to preserve the life of or to provide for every need of both man and beast. He's great and greatly to be praised. We should praise him for his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice and judgments, and for the fact he's a provider. And even if this particular passage isn't talking about save in the salvific sense, We know that he is a God who's mighty to save. It says that specifically in Zephaniah 3.17. We'll talk more about that in our next section, the blessings of his beloved. He is a God who saves. And so verses 1 through 4 set the dark night sky, the wickedness and the sinfulness of man. Verses 5 and 6, God's glory put on display. Before we turn to section 3, you remember when I said, but God I want to read from Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. You'll see the words on the screen. This is where that but God phrase comes from. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. These are words to believers that once walked in these ways. And then we see in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And that's what we see as we wrap up this first section, the immeasurable riches of God's grace on display. He's loving, he's faithful, he's righteous, he's just, 
He's a provider. He's mighty to save. He is great and greatly to be praised. There's our application point for those of us in here today who are believers. Praise God for his greatness and his glory. And let us imitate David's example. He doesn't get fixed on verses one through four and get stuck there. He turns his attention to the glory of God. Whatever sufferings or sin that we're dealing with, those around us or those in our own lives, one of the ways that we deal with those things living in this fallen world is not to dwell on them, but to dwell on Christ, to dwell on the attributes of God. And now we turn to section three, the blessings of his beloved. In verse seven, how precious is your steadfast love, David says. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them the drink. You give them drink from the river of your delights for with you is the fountain of your life. In your light do we see light. Second time we see steadfast love and instead of declaring it, now David is speaking of the preciousness of it. Something that's splendid or rare or one of a kind. I just did a quick Google search. I'll sometimes do this with simple English words just to see some of the definitions and this one stood out to me. It's something that's not to be wasted or treated carelessly. That's what precious means. Not to be wasted or treated carelessly. Believers in here today, we shouldn't treat carelessly that steadfast love. Those in here today that don't know Christ as your Savior, that is a gift that's being extended to you. And David continues on to speak of these blessings. He says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. What a sweet image that brings to mind. Again, I did a couple searches this week, and I saw a mother hen, not with her wings stretched out, providing shade for her chicks, but she had them all tucked in close. I saw like seven little feet uh, sticking out from underneath her wings, and it was just a beautiful reminder, not just providing shade, but protection, a place of refuge. She's drawn them in. They, they, are, they are up into her wings. She's, whether protecting them from the elements or from a predator, those chicks have found refuge there. A sweet reminder again of Christ's invitation. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. There is an invitation. Let's continue on and see what God's word says in verses 8 through 9 about these blessings of the beloved. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. This points back to God's provision for his people that we spoke about in verse 6, but not only are we being provided for and, and feasting on the abundance of his house now, there's a, a future and forward thinking that we should have in mind, the future hope that awaits us as his children, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, or Jesus himself saying in John 14 that he's going to prepare a place for his children. He says in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also another promise that God will fulfill for his people. 
and you know the way to where I am going, and that is through Jesus Christ. Continue on with the second half of verse 8 and 9. You give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. That is so sweet. The river of his delights. We should delight in this river that he provides for us. You know, we sang a song this morning. The, the first song that we sang was called Living Waters. I was going to sing a few stanzas for you, but I thought I would just read them instead. So here, here are a few of the words we sang about these living waters. We're now talking about salvation. Remember, he's mighty to save from Zephaniah 3.17. Listen to what these words say. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Yes, believers can daily continue to draw upon the waters that Christ provides, but I believe there is another call to those that don't know him as Lord and Savior to come. It says, tired and broken, peace unspoken, rest beside these living waters. There's a river that flows with mercy and love, bringing joy to the city of our God. There our hope is secure. Do not fear anymore. Praise the Lord of living waters. Christ is calling. Find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Lay your life down. All the old gone, rise up in these living waters. Rise up in these living waters. How are we going to be able to rise up? Through the living waters that Christ provides. We know there's something more than just physical water being spoken about here. It's spiritual water. It's salvation. And I know you might be thinking, Taylor, that those are song lyrics. Thank you for pointing that out. Let me turn your attention to John 7, where Jesus says something very similar. Verses 37 through 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only is he provided living water, living water will flow out of him. What is that talking about? It's talking about the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Because verse 39 says it. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Another blessing of his beloved and an invitation from Christ to come and drink from these living waters. And this makes so much sense now looking at verse 9 when it says, in your light do we see light. There are so many references in Scripture, we won't go through them all, but just a few to, to bridge the gap between light and salvation in Jesus Christ. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The blessings of the beloved, we can take refuge in the shadow of his wings. We have a seat at the table now in his providential care and provisions, and we have a seat at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He is great. He is greatly to be praised, and he is mighty to save. A couple application points. Let's remember the preciousness 
of the steadfast love of God and not waste that, not treat it carelessly. Believers, let us daily delight in it. And if you're here today and don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to listen to that call to come to him for those living waters. So again, as a reminder and a a brief overview, we set the stage with verses one through four and the dark sky. Verses five and six, the glory of God put on display. David praising God for his attributes. Then we see the blessings of his people. And now we transition into our last point, a prayer and petition in verses 10 through 12. Read with me. Oh, continue your steadfast love to who? To those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down. They are unable to rise. In pastoral development, we were talking this week about just the variation of the different themes. We have the wickedness of man, the glory of God, the blessings of his people, and now David seems to be trying to take all these things and put them together And as a helpful reminder that this last section is almost as if David is saying, Lord, I need you to be and trust you will be all that you say you are. And I need you to, and I trust that you will do all that you have promised to do in order to keep me away from what I see in verses one through four and the destiny that we'll see in verse 12 of those that don't come to fear God. I need you to continue to be who you are, saying you are, and doing all that you're saying you will do, and I trust that you will, Lord. When he says to continue your steadfast love, remember, steadfastness, we know this is something unwavering. He's saying, continue on with your continual love. Keep it coming, Lord. And your righteousness that's like the mountains of God, keep that coming as well. This is the third time we see steadfast love mentioned. First, David declares it. Second, he says how precious it is. Now he's saying, Lord, continually pour it out upon me. Your righteousness that extends, that is like the mighty mountains, keep blessing me with it, pouring the righteousness of Christ on your people. And then in verse 11, he is praying for protection. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. What a humble prayer. David is asking for protection from the evil one and the wicked that may be hotly pursuing him, but he's also a man who even in right relationship with the Lord wrestles with sin. Lord, protect me from entering into that. Jesus models this in his prayer. In Matthew 6, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. That's what David's doing now. Lord, I need you to be all that I know you are and do all that I know you have done and will continue to do to keep me walking in your precepts, not walking in the way of the wicked, but the way of the righteous. And do you remember earlier when I I finished reading through the first four verses and I said, we're going to press pause? This is where we unpause from verse 4. And we'll read through verse 12. At one point in time, even believers in Jesus Christ who are gathered here today, we once walked in darkness. There was a time when we didn't fear God, but remember our spiritually blind eyes were opened through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
but for those who continue to walk in darkness, that don't step into that marvelous light, that don't go to Christ for those living waters. This is what verse 12 has to say. There, the evildoers lie fallen, there being separated from God. They're thrust down and they're unable to rise. Their destiny is destruction, is what the, the word of the Lord says. In the very first book, the very first chapter of Psalm in verses five and six, it says something very similar. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And I know that seems like a dark place to end this psalm, but remember we shouldn't dwell on that darkness, but turn our mind and our heart's attention to the glory of God for those of us who are in light relationship with him. We know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, and the only way they will be able to stand the judgment of God is by being in right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so a couple points of application here from this last section for believers. Let's pray like David did. Pray for the Lord's protection. Pray for him continually to be all that we know that he is, to help us to walk according to his precepts. And if you're in here today and don't know the Lord as your Savior, an application point from this entire psalm would to be to fall on your knees and to cry out to Jesus. Confess your sins to him, repent of them, and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And one day, as the word of the Lord says, we'll stand before the judgment throne of God. And after you, you kneel and bow before him, you will only be able to stand because of that relationship that you have with Christ. And so now as we transition to a close, I don't have all the application points here, but a few brief reminders from some things we've heard today. I tried to weave some application in throughout. And here we see just a few, five points. The darkness of sin is indeed great, but God is greater. We should remember that. And for believers, that we should not get stuck in that darkness, remember, but dwell on his character in the midst of sin and brokenness in this world that we live in. Two more for the believer. We should take refuge in him and delight in him, refuge in the shadow of his wings and delight in the living waters. And we should pray and pray like David for the Lord's protection. And this last point is for all of us, believers and non-believers, to come and drink of the living waters of Christ. I'm going to close this out in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to read the last part of Psalm 145, which was how we started today, our scriptural call to worship, Psalm 145, 1 through 7. I'll pray, and then I'll read from Psalm 145, 17 through 21, the last part of that psalm, and then we get to respond to the Lord and how great he is, and seeing how great thou art. Lord, we love you. You are indeed great and greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable, and we praise you and thank you as your people for your steadfast love and faithfulness, your righteousness, your judgments and justice, your provision, and your saving grace. Thank you for the living waters that Christ provides. Thank you for opening our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, softening our hard hearts to the beauty of the gospel, gifting us with the Holy Spirit, drawing us to yourself. And Lord, now, 
as we lift up our voices, may it be a sweet fragrance before you to praise you for how great you are, God. And I pray that you would be working on the hearts of any who may be gathered here today that don't know you, that you, through your spirit, would do a work in drawing them to your living waters as well. In Christ's name, amen. If you would please stand as I read from Psalm 145. You should see the words on the screen, verses 17 through 21. And then we'll lift up our voices in song to the Lord. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind to all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen.